welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Rochelle Bookbinder is a physician specialising in rheumatology, director of the Monash Cabrini Department of Musculoskeletal Health and Clinical Epidemiology at Cabrini Hospital, and a professor of clinical epidemiology at Monash University. She is known internationally as a vocal proponent of evidence-based medicine and for her landmark studies, particularly those examining treatments accepted into practice before proper evaluation. She has published more than 600 scientific papers and is in the top 0.1% of the world's most cited scientists. She was appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for Services to Epidemiology and Rheumatology in 2020 and admitted as a Fellow to the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences in 2015. Welcome to the Orthopod, Professor Bookbinder. Thanks, Liam. So you've recently published the book Hypocrisy, How Doctors Are Betraying Their Oath with Professor Ian Harris, which is available on Apple Books, Amazon Kindle Store and all good bookstores. The first sentence of the book is, while many medical students take the Hippocratic Oath or a similar pledge before graduating, reciting lines like, first, do no harm, we've ended up with a healthcare system that's one of the greatest threats to human health. Now, I'm a medical student and I've a few years to go until I take a Hippocratic Oath, but am I really getting into a system where I won't actually improve people's health? I think you have to go in with your eyes open and ensure that you don't get sucked into the problems of medicine, particularly making sure that your practice is science-based, that you're not influenced by other people who tell you things and, and you blindly believe them. I think you also have to ensure that you've got skills in being empathetic uh, and compassionate when you deal with patients and be open, be open to them asking you questions about, you know, what's the evidence that this works and what are the risks and would I be better off doing something else and what if I do nothing? So I think if you go into medicine with the pure um, motivation to help patients and improve health, then I think you'll make a great doctor. But there are lots of perils that, that contribute up. And, and, and so I think you have to be aware of those. You have to be aware that medicine is a business. Uh, and so some people get sucked into you know, the, the business aspects and, and seem to forget about the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, so the pledges in the Hippocratic Oath are really still pertinent today. Uh, and I think that it's important to, to reflect on that from time to time. Yeah, well, one of the examples of doctors harming patients that you wrote about in the book is deep sleep therapy, which was at Chelmsford Private Hospital in Sydney, uh, where over a period of 1963 to 1979, patients were shackled to a bed naked and placed in a coma for two weeks to treat things like depression, alcoholism, and a variety of other conditions. Despite many of these people dying, you explained in the book how doctors don't actually intend to harm people. So how can it be that doctors advocate for and deliver harmful treatments like deep sleep therapy when they aren't necessarily meaning to harm people? So, so I think as a, as a whole, that doctors tend to very much overestimate the benefits of our treatments and very much underestimate the potential harms. The Chelmsford Hospital example really shows what can go wrong when 
there is too much trust in doctors and doctors are ignorant of science and science-based medicine. So these group of doctors just believed that the treatment worked, even though uh, it was based on shell shock therapy and, and that was had already been shown not to be effective for soldiers who had become shell-shocked and they were only put to sleep for a couple of hours and it didn't help them. Uh, these doctors didn't do any base, any scientific um, studies to prove that what they did worked and they tended to just believe their anecdotal experience. Uh, if you add into the that the fact that they get paid to do these treatments, uh, it was a private hospital that was owned by the, the main proponent of the treatment, then I think all those things converged together uh, and, and harm happened. Uh, even though it was, in, in retrospect, it was obviously a really terrible thing that happened. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's early in the book, that part of the, that story, and it's, it's very hard to understand as a medical student in 2020, 2021, that that could happen. But there's many examples in, in medicine nowadays probably where people are doing things and then in the future we'll look back and think, what were they thinking? <laughs> exactly. That's, we, know that, we know that to be true. Well, we know that people are doing things that have, have been proven to have no benefit but will only harm people. And we, we give quite a few examples in the book about that. Yeah, well, I mean, doctors are quick to criticise, say, complementary or alternative medical practitioners for their treatments, lacking scientific evidence. But many doctors, they don't even know how to interpret the evidence which informs their own clinical practice or worse they reject evidence that they don't even believe. Why do you think it is that doctors see medicine through rose-coloured glasses? I'm glad you asked me that question. There are several reasons, and I'm sure there are more reasons, that, and we wrote about, I think we had about a half a dozen in the book. The main reason, I think, is ignorance of science. So they just don't understand how, how evidence works. Uh, they tend to believe what they see, they forget about things like many conditions that we treat in medicine will get better anyway, and our treatments won't change that. And so if someone gets better, they wrongly attribute it to their treatment rather than maybe they got better in spite of the treatment or the treatment was totally irrelevant. I think that they also, they want to believe that they're helping people uh, and so that they practice something called cognitive dissonance where they, they believe something even if the evidence is, is irrefutable and overwhelming and they tend to look for evidence that matches their beliefs. And so when I sometimes talk about the evidence in the trials, they'll point me to another study that found the opposite. But usually that study will be a poorer design. It will be patients weren't blinded. Uh, they weren't really randomised. Um, so so there, are, there are biases that can creep in and if you don't understand those biases, you can believe anything really. I think that they also suffer with something we call miracle thinking where they want to believe that what they're doing is, is good and, and right and, and they're hoping that maybe this time it will be a miracle. I think uh, something that's really important and I, I'm really depressed about it is they're very easily misled. So they're misled by media. Um, you know, this is a miracle new drug. They're, they're misled by drug companies, by industry. 
they're misled by advertisements, by what their peers are doing. And I think that really what they need to do is think about, well, what is the evidence, rather than just blindly follow like sheep. Um, I think also, I mean, we all do medicine because we want to help people. I think that, well, that was my motivation and I'm sure it's your motivation. And we want to feel valued and we want to feel like we are helping people. So I think some of that is also why I think sometimes people want to give you treatment even though they might even know that it doesn't work because they don't want to let you down. They, they, they want to do something rather than just say it'll get better, you don't need to do anything. Um, and I think a lot of doctors, we're busy, they just don't stop to think, so they do things like they've always done before without questioning it. It's also, we've talked about doctors, um, but patients as well might come expecting things. I know one of my friends, he's just started working as a physiotherapist and we were having a chat just yesterday, in fact, because he's had his first difficult patient he was looking forward to it and he's, he's encountered someone who was convinced that they needed an MRI because they had pain and the MRI will, will prove that the pain is there. Is it an issue as well if, if patients see things as well where they're, they're, something has to be done and, and it's difficult to convince? Like how do you convince a person that their pain will go away by doing nothing? I think, yeah, I think it's a skill and you have to learn how to talk to patients. And you're right that we... Patients increasingly expect things to be done uh, and there is, they really don't understand the disconnect between doing a test and, and that being harmful because we all think that more information and particularly more information about my body must be really something that's good. And, and so I think one of the things that we don't do well is explain how that can lead to downstream harm. So you can pick up incidental things that suddenly get treated. And we have lots of examples that, that we put in the book, particularly things like thyroid cancers that were being screened in Korea. So I think it's, it's much easier to do a test as well than to spend the time to explain why someone doesn't need the test. But in my experience, most patients, when you explain things to them, in an evidence-based, empathic and truthful way, take the path that seems most logical and rational. Mm. Well, I'm sort of leading towards what you wrote about in the book, the disease-illness paradigm, and how doctors have doctors and the healthcare industry have caused a decline in resilience, leading to unpleasant sensations like headaches, mild anxiety, irregular bowel habits, and other normal parts of life becoming medical conditions. So does this mean Voltaire was right when he said the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease? For a lot of conditions, that is totally correct. Uh, so there are, particularly in my field of musculoskeletal medicine, many things that, that we see like back pain, shoulder pain, knee pain, most of those elbow pain, tennis elbow, those things are self-limiting. They get better over time, whatever you do. And they often get better really quickly. So if you treat someone really really in the acute phase, it will look like the treatment's worked. And I think, you know, I'm not talking about things like rheumatoid arthritis that, that does need treatments. I should make clear that there's lots of good things in medicine and lots of great breakthroughs, but it's this need to treat everything. Everything that's unpleasant in your life must be medicalized and treated. 
and and we know that 30% of what we do is wasted and a lot of that probably relates to those those um, normal everyday irritants of life and and so I put back pain in there back pains should be just be treated like the common cold and the common cold everyone knows it will get better if you you know if it's really bad you might have to rest for a bit but it will get better and and I think back pain needs to be treated the same way if, uh, we give an example in the book in um, native populations and in you know, populations without contact with western medicine back pain is just a normal part of everyday life and it's only when they're exposed to western medicine and and over treatment that it becomes a medical problem yeah, well, one of the terms I liked in the book was this thing, diagnosis creep, where you've got things like pre-hypertension, pre-diabetes, pre-obesity, and pre-fracture or osteopenia. Could you elaborate on what this is? Yeah, so it's so it's about doctors wanting to help, wanting to, to do good, and thinking that if you pick things up even earlier, uh, you'll be able to prevent it happening down the track but without thinking about unintended consequences and the unintended consequences are that you are labeling someone with disease uh, and often that creates a nice space for medic for medicalization and drug therapy so a lot of these things are have been coined to try and get people to improve their lifestyle um, but what happens is that they go down, down the medical track and, and, and you can imagine that it just widens the pool that, that might need treatment for all of those conditions that you mentioned. Yes, well, one of the lines of the Hippocratic Oath is, I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures which are required, avoiding those twin traps of over-treatment and therapeutic nihilism. What are over-treatment and therapeutic nihilism and why should I avoid them? So... I'll start with therapeutic nihilism because up until maybe the 19th century, doctors knew that most things in medicine didn't work and so they were nihilistic about it. You know, they were trying to tell people not to do them. And in fact, most of the advances in our health and our increased lifespan has been due, due to public health measures, nothing to do with medical treatments. Uh, and so doctors weren't keen on treating people. But around the time in the 20th century when we started to have effective treatments like vitamin C for scurvy, that sort of was about the start, uh, that we started to creep towards over-treatment. So we suddenly decided that we could, we, there were treatments that did work and did help people like antibiotics, um, but we've now gone the other end of the spectrum to overtreatment. And overtreatment uh, is treating someone uh, with a treatment that doesn't help them. It won't help them in their lifetime, but might harm them. And there are lots and lots of examples of overtreatment. And overtreatment is also overtesting. Uh, and as med students, you learn about evidence-based medicine, but when you get to the hospital, you're the intern, and the consultant wants all the tests done and you just do the, all the tests every time without thinking and multiple tests because you don't know what they're going to ask for. So you just keep doing the tests. And a lot of those tests, if you do 10 tests, one will be abnormal by chance. So you're just increasing the likelihood that you'll pick up abnormalities and then you'll go down the rabbit hole and look for why that's happening. 
Um, so uh, there's over-testing that very often leads to over-diagnosis and with increasing sensitivity of tests of things like scans, you end up picking up more things uh, and then you can justify more treatment and particularly more invasive treatment to justify um, because you've got abnormalities. So it's sort of a circle and, and it's self-fulfilling. And we know that, as I said before, 30% of healthcare is low value and wasted and probably another 10% is harmful. So we really have to be careful that what we do doesn't harm people and, and that should be the first thing that we think of. And we should make sure that we don't ever overestimate benefits and we need to not forget about the harms and particularly the unintended harms. Yes, well, you mentioned public health and after starting to write hypocrisy, the world entered the COVID-19 pandemic, which actually highlights a lot of the issues you describe in the book, that being that public health measures reduce infection rates before a vaccine became available, not hydroxychloroquine or biochargers. Why doesn't the medical community live up to their oath of preventing disease by spending more time targeting things like smoking, alcohol and obesity at both an individual and population level? I think, well, firstly, that's not where, what we're primarily trained to do. We're trained to treat individuals, so we're not trained as public health physicians. Uh, so I'm trying to be kind. Uh, I think that it's really hard because we get paid fee-for-service and so everything in healthcare is geared towards treating people. It's not geared towards prevention. Um, and, you know... There were doctors who have reduced smoking. Uh, they're the ones that have really been lobbying uh, for uh, mass media campaigns, the plain language packaging. So there have been, you know, it's groups of small groups of doctors that have pushed that. I think that we should do be doing much more. We sh we really need to be thinking about prevention, and as we write in the book, um, increasing. We need to increase awareness that healthcare is also bad for the for the environment, and that will become a huge issue. And I hope medical students will start to really look at the environmental cost of healthcare, um, and and increasing. You know, doctors are becoming aware, but it's really nowhere near where it needs to be. We we just this is something that wasn't in the book. We've just done a review of what we know about the environmental cost of healthcare in musculoskeletal medicine. Nothing. Zero. There were four studies and eight editorials. Uh, the four studies were all really looking at surgical waste and, and, and looking how they can reduce waste. But waste is a really small component of the carbon footprint of healthcare. So I think that, that we really start need, need to look by specialty at what we're doing. And the anaesthetists are way ahead. They're, they're already knowing about nitrous oxide and uh, anaesthetic gases but there's much more that we need, that, you know, urgently need to do. Is, you know, how, how, how do you teach people, particularly medical students, to start thinking broader without forcing them to go and do a Master of Public Health? How, how do we change the narrative around doctors thinking bigger picture? I think it's really hard because you need, you need basic science knowledge, which you get in medical school, and medical students are starved for knowledge. But what we really need to teach them is to be, be a bit skeptical, to have an inquiring mind, uh, to understand how to um, find the answer to a problem like 
what's the evidence that this treatment works? What's the evidence that this is the cause of that? So they need, they need those science skills. And I think they need to have that renewed and, and um, retaught. Uh, and when I was in Canada, when I, was, I did my Masters of Clinical Epidemiology, all, all um, specialist trainees had to do introduction to clinical epidemiology, which is like the first bit of a Masters of Public Health that teaches you critical appraisal about um, how to read an article on treatment or causation. And I think that's something that we should be insisting on in our young doctors uh, and we should and they should keep doing it they should be continuing education around how to do that and, and you know we do it a little bit with journal club but it needs to be science-paced journal club so that's one thing there's lots of other things there's there's empathy you know treating your patient with empathy and compassion giving them the permission to ask you questions and I think that I was thinking that I need to have a sign up in my office with the five choosing wisely questions to give people permission to ask me those questions. Do I really need to do this treatment? What would happen if I didn't do it? You know, are there better alternatives? What are the risks? Um, so I think that that you need to improve your own knowledge, your own science-based understanding of medicine. I think everyone should do invest in research because research is really how you really get to understand it and you realise how much you don't know when you do research. I think all med students should do a Cochrane review uh, and I have quite a few co- uh, medical students. I shouldn't say this because then I'll get a barrage of phone calls, which is what happens every time I say this. But it's a really great way of learning about evidence and, and about you know things that you think that people tell you that's what you do and then you go and find out that the evidence is nothing. So my first experience was looking at Plaquenil for lupus when I was doing my masters and I went and found you know what the evidence for Plaquenil was it was a professor of lupus in his book uh, case series of a few patients and based on that everybody was treated with Plaquenil and it wasn't until not that long ago that they were able to do a trial and they did a trial where half the patients were continued on Plaquenil and half were were, um, withdrawn and it was actually proven that it did work, it did stop, um, it did prevent flare-ups for lupus. But the evidence at the beginning, you know, 20 years ago was based on nothing. And the more that you go and find out what the evidence is for what you're learning, you'll find that it's, what do you call it? It's been founded on a, on a, a house of sticks, like the, you know, three pigs that I read to my grandson. Um, and then finally, I think you've got to reduce the environmental impact, as I said before. Yeah, you've mentioned the um, environmental impact of medicine. What was the name of that doctor at the Western that is doing a bit of work in, in that area? His name's Dr. Forbes McGain, and he's one of my personal heroes. He's a world leader in trying to reduce the environmental impact of healthcare. He's yeah. an anaesthetist and uh, ICU trained physician. I'll have to try and get him on the podcast. I hope you'll be able to help me out with that. Absolutely. Oh, I'm sure good. he'd love to talk to you. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll finish with something that we've talked about it off the podcast, vertebroplasty or vertebroplasty, depending on how you look at it. So following the emergence of the COVID vaccines, I think people nowadays will be non-medical people will be well aware of how new medicines have to go through trials for approval but surgical procedures don't go through trials 
So what is vertebroplasty and what is the vertebroplasty affair? So can I just firstly say that medicines didn't have to go through trials forever. That decision only happened in the 1950s and 60s as a result of thalidomide. So thalidomide was marketed to pregnant women worldwide on the basis of no evidence to reduce nausea. And uh, as I hope you know, it harmed countless women women and their unborn children and their born children. And that's when the TGA started and the FDA in the US. So it's not that long ago. So you need to know that it wasn't 200 years ago. It was it was in your lifetime or my life, no, your lifetime, my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> no, not even, not even, it was actually thalidomide. My mother was offered thalidomide. So it is just before my lifetime. Uh, and things are slowly changing, but you're right, in, in this country, to get a drug onto a subsidised program, it's got to, it has to have evidence of benefits and safety and cost effectiveness. The same rule until recently hasn't applied to new procedures and new surgeries. So in surgery, traditionally, someone comes up with a new operation or a better way of doing something and then suddenly everyone's doing it that way and and that's how it was always done increasingly we don't think that's the right approach and new treatments we think should all have evidence of effectiveness um, but lots of treatments in the past have not been done that way so vertoplasty is a treatment of basically getting bone cement, so the same cement that, that surgeons use um, in their, for other procedures, and, and injecting it into a fracture in your back, in, into the spine, and filling up the supposed fracture with cement. Therefore, you fix the fracture, uh, and the pain magically disappears, and off you go. And it was started uh, in the 1980s and it was used to, for hemangiomas and malignancies and it just became standard practice almost overnight. And then there were a couple of studies that looked before and after, so compared people who'd had the treatment to people before who hadn't had the treatment and said they're much better. It took 20 years for the first randomised control trials to, to happen. Uh, and I led one in Australia and there was a second one that happened at the same time in the US at the Mayo Clinic. And prior to that, we actually, both of us, because I know Dave Kalmas who led the other study, we thought it probably worked. We were sucked in like everybody else. So I was doing the trial because I was worried about the safety and I'd seen lots of adverse events. I'd seen seen different things. I'd seen infection. Um, I'd seen people not get better. And so I wanted to be the first to prove that it worked and, and just check that it didn't increase um, increase fractures because you can imagine if you stick a block of cement in someone's spine, you change the mechanics and maybe it'll increase the risk of fractures above and below. So that's what I was interested in. So to our surprise, both trials were totally negative. There was absolutely no difference um, in terms of effect. Uh, and we published our papers simultaneously in the New England Journal and many people applauded us because we finally studied the treatment properly and found it didn't work but lots of people were already vested in it so the drug the 
in the device companies who were making the cement and the, there were uh, um, advances so then you could stick a balloon in the spine and then stick the cement in so blow the fracture up and then stick the cement in called hyperplasty um, sorry sorry so you put a balloon with cement so you and that put fixes a, a broken back you put a you um go in like you do with veroplasty but before you put cement in you put a balloon into the fracture you blow up the balloon mm. and then you fill the balloon with the cement that's mm. now a common procedure right okay and it's supposed to so one of the reasons so one of the things with veroplasty is that is that if you've got any breach of the bone wall the cement leaks out and you can get um paralysis if it leaks into the canal where the spinal cord is, it can also leak into the blood vessels so you can get pulmonary embolite. So the cement goes up and um, goes into the lungs. Um, it, it can also perforate the heart and there's several case reports now of the cement going into your heart and then going through a hole, making a hole in the heart, needing urgent surgery. So there are lots of, you can imagine, you think, and, and in fact, when we were doing the trial, it wasn't, it wasn't yet established practice in Australia. And it was hard to convince people to, to go in the trial because they were too scared. Whereas in America, everyone just wanted the procedure. They knew it worked and they wanted it. So there've been three subsequent trials that compared the procedure to a placebo or pretend procedure. They all showed the same thing, all showed it didn't work, but it's still being done. In a, it was removed from the um, MBS in Australia as a result of our trials and then it was um, and that means that it can't be done in a public hospital, is that...? No, it just means that you that the patient has to pay for it. It's not funded. Um, and, and that was the case until recently. It's now been put back, supposedly, for people with very acute fractures, less than three weeks. And only it's only meant to be around the, the lower part of the chest, so the thoracolumbar junction. Um, but basically, you can get it again. Uh, and the important thing to remember with vertebral vertebral fractures is they get better quickly whatever you do so it's like other types of acute pain um, often the pain gets better uh, and in fact we had patients that we were going to go into the trial but their pain got better so they didn't go in the trial uh, and the pain gets just as better with the placebo treatment so it doesn't work and so if you get them earlier people will think it works but in fact it's still the natural history uh, and so the procedure doesn't do any one any benefit um, but it can cause lots of harms as I've outlined it also ca can cause infection I've seen um, people injecting the wrong level so they get a cement into a normal vertebrae I've there's been um, people overseas who do preventive vertebroplasty so that you won't get a fracture in the future uh, our because um, the, because we we didn't we couldn't get enough patients we couldn't look at the risks but over the two years of our study there was a trend across every way we looked at it that it might increase the risk of future fractures but that's unproven um, but I think that the the evidence speaks for itself really that that the harms outweigh any possible benefit and what was the backlash towards you as a result of proving that this procedure's a bit shoddy? Well, the backlash, it actually started before I'd even published the study. So I was already being yelled at at meetings. Um, the, 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 the one that sticks in my mind was I gave a talk 
about the trial to a group of radiologists who were learning how to do the procedure on a Saturday morning. I'd been invited. Um, some of them in the room were actually part of the trial. And they'd invited a complementary medicine professor who'd had the procedure. And he was sort of, seemed like to me, he was planted at the front of the room. And he heckled me through my talk. He stood up and yelled, and how can you let this woman do this? And 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 uh, no one stood up for me. It was, and it was before we hadn't. We were only doing the trial. We didn't even know what the results were at that time. But as soon as the results were published, um, I had plenty of um, negative feedback. I had lots of positive feedback. Plenty, but I had negative feedback. I had people ringing me every day. People trying to um, get me. Ex- um, get me investigated at the university. Um, they rang up NHMRC who had funded the trial. Uh, they tried to stop an editorial that we'd been invited to write. They they actually hounded the editor of the MJA at the time and, and, and tried to get him not to publish it. And he actually later wrote about it in, in another editorial. Uh, and it didn't stop there. It, 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 you know, obviously NHMRC and the university knew that I had didn't have a case to answer and in fact the university have been helpful over the years uh, in 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 helping me when I get abusive emails I, I've been getting I used to get abusive emails from just people I didn't know overseas um, and we'd write letters back and say that you know leave me alone uh, and there was a doctor in Sydney that uh, had to be sent a letter from the university and the hospital um, that we would put out a restraining order if he didn't leave me alone. I, I mean, there is we did write in the book about the res- lack of respect for scientists and the science, and I've always tried to just go back to the science. What does the science show? Not take it personally, just explain the science. But there's more and more people that have been um, had similar experiences to me. I'm not alone, uh, and we've recently talked about it in a podcast that's going to be in the BMJ soon um, but it happens to a lot of people. I, there's one one more thing I wanted to touch on which is Wikipedia. I myself have, have edited a Wikipedia page. My girlfriend's sister created a coffee, uh, an espresso Sara. If you look on the Wikipedia page for different types of espressos, there is the espresso Sara. It's It's just rubbish it's I don't like it but it, it's true she did invent it so I put it on Wikipedia and it's just uh, an espresso with tap water <laughs> to dilute the flavor I don't know what she seems to like it but it's still there and I put that on Wikipedia over a year ago and it's still exists it's, it's pretty easy to edit Wikipedia but any med student uses everyone uses Wikipedia but you had an interesting experience with vertebroplasty and Wikipedia what was it so there's a, um, there are people that are responsible for checking, editing and checking edits on Wikipedia and there was a, a doctor, James Harman, who was, who was responsible for, as the editor of the vertebroplasty entry into Wikipedia and Wikipedia had you know, the evidence and, the, and that there was controversy and there had been two trials that showed it didn't work, it went on like that. But what he found is that people were trying to edit the text to put vertoplasty in a more favourable light. And they and there were more than one pe- person trying to do that. And they were trying to change things like trying to get rid of um, that it's controversial, to change it to controversial but not to the people that do it. 
And so he did some investigating because he was interested into why they were trying to um, change change the entry in a bias way. And he found that that the company that was making the cement was behind some of the push, uh, as well as a doctor who was very well um, reimbursed from the company. And and he and and it was you know a journalist found out about it and wrote about it, and that's how I found out about it. Wow, that's incredible. Professor Bookbinder, you've got a very interesting story. I think I'll have to get you on another time, particularly to talk about back pain. If anyone's interested, there are some other studies and podcasts out there with your name on it that have spoken in depth about back pain. So maybe another time we can have a chat. But thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure. And everyone, buy the book. It's very good. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at somagradgroup or on our website somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.